Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings. We'll be in chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. And as you turn there, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for all the things you give us beyond what we need that we can say it as well with our souls. Uh, Please... Anything that you want me to say this morning, please make sure I include it. Anything I wanted to say that you didn't intend for me to say, please help me forget it and help uh, anyone here forget anything I say that shouldn't be said. Uh, please control the thoughts and the, the words that are used here this morning that we would all uh, be glorifying you and that we would learn something that can help impact the way we live our lives. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So 2 Kings chapter 4, we're looking at uh, the ministry of Elisha here, particularly one story, a self-contained story. Uh, We're going to start, let's just go ahead and read the passage, and then we'll look through it again a little more closely. So 2 Kings chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 8. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall, and let us put a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. So it will be, whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there, and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, now say to her, look, you have been concerned with us for all or you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. So he said, Call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, About this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said to his father, My head, my head. So he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, It is well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? 
And she answered, It is well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, Did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house, and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her. And when she came in to him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Let's go back through this now and look a little more closely at some things and see if we can uh, pull out some some principles and some reminders that we can... Uh, have this story remind us uh, and teach us for our own lives. So beginning in verse 8, it happened one day that Elijah went to Shunem. There was a notable woman there. She persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. Now Shunem was a convenient stopping place for Elisha. Uh, he would regularly be traveling from to and from various cities and Mount Carmel. So Shunem became a nice resting place for him, which is why he was regularly passing through there. We're not sure exactly what he was doing on Mount Carmel, since he went there uh, on days that were not necessarily specific holidays. There might have been a sanctuary there, or it may have just been a place that he went for meditation or devotion. It was a significant mountain in his life. That's where Elijah had performed the contest uh, at Mount Carmel, right, where he uh, proved God's power with the fire coming down from heaven. So Elisha knew this was a significant place, and he would go there regularly, passing through Shunem. So she provided um, hospitable. Um, there's different words used to describe her, notable, prominent, wealthy, or great. Uh, in some sense, she was highly ranked or, or very rich. If that 200 years old at this point, which is plausible, but it's more likely that it was a, a relative of hers or some other woman altogether. But she was a well-known, uh, wealthy woman in, in her location. And in verse 9, she says to her husband, Look, I know this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. So we know his visits to Carmel were frequent if, she, if he uh, passed regularly through there. And she might have known that he was a holy man because his reputation uh, preceded him or perhaps because she knew of his frequent travels to Carmel and knew that he was... Uh, 
very dedicated to the work of the Lord and dedicated to his devotions and whatever his business was at Mount Carmel. Verses 10 and 11, she hospitably creates uh, this room for him to to stay in whenever uh, he passes through. And in verse 12, we're we're introduced to this character, Gehazi. Elisha says to Gehazi, call the Shunammite woman. We'll hear more about Gehazi in the next uh, few weeks here. But we do get to see a little bit of his character unfold in this story, right? Um, We saw one of the important things that I want to remember about him is that when the woman approaches Elisha on the mountain, right, he goes to push her away, right, to protect Elisha's dignity, it would seem. Um, And we'll see his character unfold more and more as we go. And then in verse 13, uh, he says to Gehazi, say now to her, look. You have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. If Elisha trusted this woman enough to stay in her home, I don't think this question was one of suspicion, uh, but rather of a genuine interest in what he might be able to do for her to repay this kindness. And for her to say, I dwell among my own people, is, is more to say, I'm surrounded by friends and family Uh, I'm provided for, I'm taken care of. Not necessarily that he thought she might be interested in relocating uh, or or changing where she lived, but rather uh, she's letting him know that that all is well with her and and her family and uh, the people she has around her. Now in verse 14, he says to Gehazi, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, she has no son and her husband is old. So when Elisha would turn in to this room, it seems that he his purposes were to be um, resting and to be in prayer. So Gehazi was more likely the one that was interacting with the family and getting to know the family. So Elisha not only values Gehazi's opinion here, but knows that Gehazi might have more information than he does. And apparently um, either Gehazi reminds him or informs him that she has no son. So it seems that he wasn't too involved with interacting with the family to notice that she didn't have a son. But Gehazi lets him know uh, she has a son and she's uh, her husband is old, uh, old enough that apparently he would not provide a solution for her to have a son. So in verse 15, he says, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Now, up to this point, it seems like Gehazi has been acting as a middleman. Elisha hasn't been directly speaking to the Shunammite woman. And when he finally calls her, she still comes but stops at the doorway. So it seems to be two things in, in play here. One is her deep respect for this man. She doesn't want to interrupt him. She doesn't want to come barge in on him. She stops at the doorway, and she seems to probably prefer to speak to Gehazi. But further, like we remember on the mountain, right? Gehazi pushes her away from Elisha. So I can picture Gehazi sort of standing at the door almost saying, what? What do you want to say to him? What do you want me to tell her? You know, sort of interacting kind of kind of not allowing her to interrupt him. But now he finally does um, address her directly. In verse um, 16, he says, About this time next year, you will embrace a son. And she says, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. We're reminded of Sarah's incredulous laughter, right? When the Lord... Uh, had promised her a child. And so the Shunammite woman's reaction, was this a reaction of 
shock and surprise or was it a, a lack of faith? I would suggest that it was a lack of faith. The same word used to describe um, when, when she says, do not lie to your, to your maidservant. It's a very strong word, lie. Uh, it's used in the Bible. Uh, it says, God is not man that he should lie. So this isn't a playful word of, you know, are you tricking me? This is a very serious word, lie. And then verse 17 begins with the word, but she conceived a son, as if to say, despite her doubt. So it seems at this point that although she recognizes the man of God to, to be that, she still has uh, doubts of, of the things he's saying here, right? Um, she says, don't lie to your servant. Verse 17, but the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. So there's, I think, the first thing that this can remind us is how we react to the promises in the word of God. Right. Elisha functions as the word of God to this woman. Right. And the things that he says and the things that he promises are the words of God. And she reacts with disbelief. And there's plenty in the scripture that we can react to either believing it or or not believing it. Some of them are positive. Right. The Bible tells us that all of our needs will be taken care of if we seek first the kingdom of God. But sometimes we not only dedicate time but emotional and, and this, this co- commitment that as if we have to take control of things, we have to fix things, right? God expects us to, uh, you know, not just be lazy and wait for him to give us everything, right? We, we take action, but it's in faith that if we're seeking him first, he'll provide the blessing for our efforts rather than getting all caught up and thinking we're providing for ourselves, right? So are we trusting in the promises of God's word? But there's also... Um, promises in God's word that are more ominous, right? More threatening. Let's say, you know, uh, um, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither idolaters nor adulterers, all these different things. And yet, um, you know, there's, there's doctrines out there that everyone, you know, it's all good. Everyone gets into heaven. Well, the word of God promises otherwise that there are consequences, that there are things that we need to be careful to avoid uh, because God gives very clear promises as to what the result of that will be. So how are we reacting to the promises in the word of God? Are we studying the word of God to know the promises? And then are we reacting to them in faith or are we acting in a way that would make us seem incredulous about the words of, of God and not trusting in the promises? But God performs this miracle and gives her a son. And in verse 18, the child grew. And it happened that one day he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to his servant, carry him back to his mother. It's not listed clearly in here what happened to the boy. Uh, the general consensus among commentators would be that he was overcome by the heat, which is a very common ailment at that time. And so a very reasonable thing for the father to do is to just send the son back to the house to cool off and be cared for. By the mother, which is why he seems to treat it with such nonchalance, right? He doesn't panic. He doesn't run back. He just says, carry him back. You know, I'm going to get back to work, take him back to the house. So the father's not too alarmed by this. Verse 20, when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door 
and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. Now, she would likely know where he was, right? Because either he had probably very likely just passed through Shunem recently on his way to Mount Carmel, or she just knows enough of his habits to know that he's at Mount Carmel now. And the husband says, why are you going in, Why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. So for her to visit the man of God at Mount Carmel must have been a, a fairly normal occurrence for her to ask her husband at least on holidays, the, the specific days. So he thinks it's um, either his curiosity is piqued or maybe he's mildly concerned as to why she would need to go see the man of God now. Again, uh, since well, being overcome by the heat would have been such a common occurrence and we see the nonchalance that he treats the issue with, he's probably not thinking anything about his son. He probably doesn't uh, have any, he doesn't mention it, surely. He would, doesn't say, is my son okay, right? Um, just curious as to why she's going. And now her response, it is well, it does not necessarily mean what we were uh, saying in that song just now, right? It is well with my soul, we're at peace, everything's fine. The word shalom does mean peace, but in this case it means more of a don't worry about it, just let me do what I want, right? It is well, don't worry about it, rather than everything's fine, more of a don't worry about it. So she says, just let me get the donkey, let me go on my way. Now why? Why doesn't she tell him? Well, our son died, and I'm going to go get the man of God to help him. Seems to me he didn't share her faith, right? If 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 he had been uh, faithful in the man of God and had this this faith, but and I mean, she conceived a son, right? At, at that point, the gift she had received, right? She received the gift of a child, which gave her the gift of faith, right? At this point, she's only lost one of those gifts. But apparently, the father didn't receive that gift of faith when he when they had the child because she seems to be keeping it keeping it quiet here it's possible that she wanted to just keep him from grieving um, but it seems more likely that he would have been maybe swift about the burial and just get the kid buried and she had other plans and other hopes and so she tells this servant now with this donkey to, to get moving, right? She says, they saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman. So since this was not a particular day, a new moon or a Sabbath, it seems that it would make sense for Elisha to be somewhat isolated on this mountain, not crowds of people there for a particular reason. So he could very likely notice someone approaching. And since her visits to Mount Carmel must have been common enough right, for her husband to say, why are you going today? You normally go on the holidays. It also makes sense that Elisha might recognize her or the way she traveled, the things she brought, her appearance. And so he sees her coming and he sends Gehazi, likely a much younger, more energetic man, uh, to go and approach her in verse, uh, where are we at? 26, right? Please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, it is well. 
So he knows this is an odd time for her to be coming, right? Perhaps God indicated to him a little bit of, uh, you know, the Shunammite woman is coming and something is wrong. We know in the next verse, verse 27, um, he says, her, her soul is in deep distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me. So God didn't reveal all the details to Elisha, but he knows something is wrong. And it may just have been from the fact that she was coming at an unusual time. She was approaching on, a, on an ordinary day. So Gehazi runs and delivers Elisha's message. He says, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? She gives Gehazi the same answer she gives her husband. Don't worry about it. Let me just go on my way. Shalom, right? Peace. Now, again, it's possible that she just wanted to talk to Elisha, but it's also possible that Gehazi didn't share Elisha's personal, sympathetic, loving tone, right? Again, we know he's the type of guy that pushes her away and sees her as more of a an interruption. So in delivering Elisha's message, he might not have uh, shared the tone. But now why did Elisha not know, right? If he's a prophet of God, it's the type of thing that he would know. He is the, all the time in the Bible we see people approach a prophet and the prophet tells them what they're thinking and what's on their mind. Well, this... This lesson of Elisha's lack of knowledge could have been for Elisha, it could be for us, it could be for the woman, it could be for Gehazi, but it's that prophets don't have knowledge of their own accord, right? All the knowledge that they receive is from God, is a gift from God. So for God to withhold this information from Elisha just reestablishes his position in the story as the one that grants information, the one that is in control. Further, it's... Generally, uh, God does not divinely reveal things that can be learned by simple inquiry, right? So the woman comes up, Elisha could just ask her what's wrong. God generally uh, tends to reveal things that would not be known any other way so that they would seem all the more miraculous. So she finally, you know, tells Gehazi, let me just go on my way. Let me go speak to the prophet. And she gets up to Elisha. And she says, verse 27, right? When she fell at his feet, Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her, let her alone for her soul is in deep distress. This makes me think of Matthew 19, right? When the little children run up to Jesus and the disciples rebuke, uh, rebuke the people for bringing them children. And Elisha models Christ for us. He says, no, 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 let them, uh, let her come, let her be. And so what does she say to him? She says, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? When I first read this, she seemed angry. She seemed angry and bitter. But I think grief would be an emotion that would more likely avoid speaking of death. Right? Anger generally spouts things. Right? My son's dead. Thanks a lot. Right? But grief would keep her from being able to speak that her son had died, that she had lost her son. So grieving, she comes to him and she points out, I didn't even ask for the child. Why would you, why would God allow this precious thing to be taken from me? I didn't even ask for it. You're the one that suggested it. I didn't say, give me a child. I told you not to deceive me and you give me a child and then he's taken away. So even without directly mentioning what had happened, 
Elisha picks up on, on the situation. And he sends Gehazi. In verse 29, he says to Gehazi, Get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. Now, as we know, the staff didn't work. So we're not sure why Elisha's suggestion was to send Gehazi with the staff, right? There's two possibilities. One, he might have thought that it would work, right? That the staff would work and then maybe there would be a lesson that it's not Elijah's or Elisha's power rather, but that it's God acting. Or perhaps he knew that it wouldn't work. And he sought to make a lesson that his his staff was not magical, that there was no power in his staff. But whatever it was, Elisha uh, sends Gehazi ahead with the staff, tells him to get there very quickly. But what is what does the woman think of this? In verse 30, it says, the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. These are familiar words to Elisha. Two chapters before, 2 Kings chapter 2, right before Elijah is taken up by chariots of horses and chariots of, or rather chariots of fire and horses of fire. Uh, three times Elisha speaks these exact words to Elijah. Elijah is going to be traveling on and he tells him, stay here. And he says these exact, wor- exact words that the woman says. He says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So now that his own words are spoken back to him and he he relents and he goes with her. But he still sends Gehazi. So Gehazi in verse 31, Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child. There was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, the child is not awakened. So whatever Elisha's original purpose in sending Gehazi with the staff, he continues uh, continues with that plan. So even though he's going with her, he still says to go ahead. So whatever lesson he had planned, he still uh, would hope either that it would work or that it wouldn't work. And also now perhaps to give her some comfort that something can and is being done. And so from those verses, two thoughts come to mind. Is how desperately do we seek Jesus, do we seek Christ for our needs? Right. I, I think of in uh, Mark chapter two, the four friends who so desperately want Jesus's power that they carry their paralytic friend up onto a roof. They open a hole and they lower him down in front of Jesus. They're going to great lengths, right? She gets a donkey. She goes to this mountain, possibly climbs part of a mountain, falls at his feet, refuses to let him go. Right. This desperate seeking the knowing where the power is and, and seeking it. Desperately. And then how. How fervently do we desire. Jesus himself. Right. Jesus's personal contact. Um, Again in Mark chapter five. The woman with the flow of blood. She says if only I can touch the hem of his garment. I'll be healed. I don't want anything else. I don't want him to send someone. I want him i want his contact i want him there and so she says i'm as the i'm not leaving without you you're coming with me desperately wanting him there desperately seeking and then desiring his personal contact and so he goes with her and in verse 
verse 31, Gehazi went on ahead, came back and said, the child is not awakened. In verse 32, Elijah came into the house and there was the child lying dead on his bed. Some some would suggest that the child was asleep because of Gehazi's statement that the child is not awakened. But not only is that a common term in the Old Testament for death, but we know multiple other times in the passage on her knees, uh, the child died. The word is dead. And it's been several hours now. You don't the I forget the exact distance between Shunem and Carmel, but it was hours and hours of traveling. So there's no doubt that the child has died. The language explains it. And the timing confirms it. And so he arrives at the house and finds the child lying dead on the bed. And he goes in and shuts the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Finally, we see prayer in this passage. I would imagine that Elisha had been praying to God as he traveled, but it's omitted specifically from the story until this verse. No one has gone to God for the power of prayer at this point. We don't see the the woman doing it. We don't see Gehazi doing it. We don't even see Elisha doing it until he finally gets to the house. Would the staff have healed the boy if, if they had all been in prayer? Maybe so. I don't know. It just takes an incredibly long time for the power of prayer to finally be unleashed here. And in verse 33 is where it starts. He shuts the door behind them and prays to the Lord. And then verse 34, he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. Seems to be a strange medical procedure. But either this was what the Lord had informed Elisha to do during his prayer or that Elisha is simply imitating what Elijah did in 1 Kings 17. Elijah also brought a child back to life and he did the same thing by stretching himself out over him. This is also a difficult process to picture what exactly happened, right? Uh, Most would agree that this child was probably six or seven approximately at this time. So for a full-grown man to be stretched out on the child seems a little um, stressful. Um, He might have been bending over the bed, or some would suggest that he did each of these movements in succession. Um, Put his mouth on the child, then put his eyes on the child, and then put his hands on the child uh, step by step. But the child doesn't spring back to life. The child just becomes warm. Verse 35, it says, He returned and walked back and forth in the house, and again went up and stretched himself out on him, Then the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Now, when I hear the phrase uh, that he walked back and forth in the house, I see him nail biting, pacing back and forth. Right. But the language means that he walked once away and came right back. Some suggest that he was merely stretching from being stretched out and hunched over the child. Uh, perhaps he was just in, in a moment of deep distress and fervent prayer. He, he paced back and forth, but he quickly comes back and, and continues the procedure despite the lack of immediate results. 
The child sneezes seven times, right? Seven is God's commonly used number for completeness and perfection. And seven sneezes, I, I liked what one commentator said, that seven sneezes would unmistakably be evidence of life, right? One sneeze takes a lot of energy. Two is exhausting. Seven would be proof that the, the child would come back to life. And so seven sneezes, restoring the, the, the breath and proving that life had been given back. And so Elisha calls Gehazi and says, Call the Shunammite woman. And he calls her. And when she came into him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. You might be able to come down a little bit on Elisha for taking so long to begin prayer. On the mountain, we don't see that he prayed. On the way, we don't see that he prayed. But one good thing that we see from him is that he persisted in faithful action, even when there was, there was no immediate results. Right? We talked about that before we, we sang that last song. When God doesn't give you exactly what you want when you expect it, what should your response be? Are we discouraged when God acts, seems to act slowly? Or, or, or when he acts in stages, right? The child became warm. There was evidence of something happening, but not the result they had hoped for. But Elisha just continues in faithful action, even though he didn't have the result that he was hoping for immediately. And then I think most importantly is that moving from death to life requires close personal contact, right? Obviously that illustration is very clear to us that moving from death to life requires this closeness with Christ just like the woman with the blood where she said if I can just touch the hem of his garment I know I'll be healed right and that's what we so desperately need is this closeness with Christ that can bring us from death into life but not only what we need but what we have to invest in others right are we casually just you know, passing out a piece of literature or just seeing people as targets that we talk to one time and then leave? Are we involved in get, getting close with them and giving them a relationship and closeness and example and love that can, that can might have God use us to bring them from death to life? So we can look back at the Shunammite woman and see all this progress that she made, right? At the beginning, she doubted. She was a doubter. She... She didn't have a son, right? She was lacking some aspect of life here. And she wasn't even seeking a solution for her problem. Elisha said, what can I do for you? And she said, nothing, I'm fine. And then she's given a gift, even in spite of her doubt. So now she believes. And she has this faith and hope, a fervent faith, a desperate hope, right? That causes her to take action. And then finally, we see a more mature faith from her. When Elisha says, come, take your child. I can't imagine not running directly to my child and, and scooping them up, right? But she doesn't. She falls at his feet and bows to the ground, honoring, thanking, respecting, and then goes to collect her child. And so again, the four principles that we looked at is that are we believing in the promises of his word, right? We don't have prophets now because we have all of God's word and all of his promises here. And they are for us and they are true. And are we believing them faithfully or are we doubting them incredulously? When we need Christ, which is 
always. Are we desperately seeking him? Or do we give up at the first sign of opposition? Oh, there's a crowd. We can't make it in. Oh, he's at the mountain. Can't make it in. Or do we break a hole in the roof, right? Do we climb the mountain? Do we go desperately seek him? And then do we value, do we see the value of personal contact in our own lives and in sharing it with other people? And then do we persistently act in faith? When things don't go according to plan, when prayers aren't answered immediately, do we give up? Or do we just continue our role, right? Said before that our, our job is to obey and it's God's job for the results, right? So we're not called to give up and try new things. We're called to just persist and let God be in control. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for engaging uh, stories that we can understand uh, simply and then take the time to dig into and see more uh, over and over again. And we thank you that your word is inexhaustible, that we can read over and over and always see new truth and have more revealed to us. And we want that, that, that truth to be applied to our lives and not just something we remember and just keep in our head, but that it would make its way into our heart and affect the way that we live. So please help us to remember the, the things that are true from your word, um, that it would dramatically change the way we are, enough that people would notice and ask what, what a strange difference was in us. So please be with us uh, today, this week, our lives, that we would be doers of the word. Please keep us until the next time that we meet again. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.